0: Radio.org.au Q&A with Archbishop Julian Porteus To another edition of Q and A with Archbishop Julian Porteus. We're broadcasting to you again from Hobart, Tasmania. You're here with Jess and Alex. So, Your Grace, I want to start by reading to you a quote from the Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew, who met with Pope Francis in Jerusalem in May this year, and he said, "We agreed to leave as a legacy to ourselves and our successors a gathering in Nicaea in 2025." To celebrate together after 17 centuries, the first truly ecumenical synod where the creed was first promulgated. This is a pretty remarkable statement, Your Grace, and maybe we can kick off just by asking you to give us a bit of an overview about the current relationship between the Catholic and Orthodox
1: churches. Mm. That, that, that is a very interesting statement, indeed. As you're aware, Pope um, Francis went to... Um, to Jerusalem, and uh, he, he really um, wanted to take the opportunity to, all, uh, apart from meeting with Jewish leaders and Palestinian leaders, to also take the opportunity to meet with the Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew. And they they met together, and it was the uh, Ecumenical Patriarch who who came forward with this statement. So obviously they had discussed it among themselves, and uh, it, 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 it highlights a number of things. Firstly. The fact that it's, it's a, it's a, an overture from the Orthodox Church to the Catholic Church to say, what about us meeting together, um, as we did 1700 years ago to, at, at Nicaea. Nicaea is in modern Turkey. And, uh, and he, he was proposing there that that council, which was, which we know so well because we always say the Nicaean Creed. And so that was the statement of faith. That was, um, if you like, hammered out at the uh, Council of Nicaea and really became the, 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 the clear statement of orthodoxy, if you like, the statement of this is what we believe. This is how we understand, particularly the nature of Christ and the nature of, of this, uh, salvation and the salvation and the nature of the Trinity. So it was a very important clarification of uh, what are the essential things we believe in, uh, as, as Christians, in this case, as both Catholics and Orthodox. We both hold very clearly to the Nicene Creed as being a fundamental formula uh, of our faith. And so the ecumenical patriarch was saying, well, it would be very good for us to come together to, uh, if like, I built around this common uh, expression of faith and to, to meet together. And this, I, I think, could be a very probably more a symbolic action than anything else. I don't know whether they would necessarily, they don't need to develop a new creed or anything like that. We've got got a creed. But what it would be would be a very significant expression of the fact that the Orthodox churches and the Catholic Church coming together built around the common faith that both churches share. And I think symbolically, I think it would be something of some significance, um, a sign of a desire for the Orthodox world, the Catholic world, to be drawn together, united in the common faith that we both share.
2: Just taking a step back for the moment, your grace, what, what do you think are the key theological problems that separate the Orthodox and Catholic Church? And what prospects do you... You hold for their resolution in the future.
1: Is yeah, so the, the story of the um, what eventually be called the Great Schism, which took place, um, if like, formally, in ten fifty four, when, when, um, uh, unfortunately, both uh, the, the the Pope at the time and also the uh, the, the uh, head of the Orthodox Church in Byzantium, um, both basically excommunicate each other. It was just the relationships had so broken down. That uh, that they, they issued mutual um, excommunications. It was a very sad moment for Christianity because it came about through a whole lot of unfortunate things. I mean, there were terrible things that the Catholic Church did. At one stage, a whole group of Crusaders came into um, Constantinople and and uh, basically sacked the city. And, and really, there was no excuse for it. It was that was just uh, something that left an indelible. Uh, mark of of, uh, of of hurt and of pain in in the Orthodox world, which they still uh, feel acutely today. And there were there were things like this that happened, partly because the uh, the church was really centered in two locations. It was centered in Rome, and obviously under the Pope, the successor of Saint Peter. But the church in the East, in Constantinople, had grown and and was. Uh, was very uh, alive and and, uh, had a very strong tradition, but they'd become separated historically. They'd become separated culturally. And so there was this um, breakdown in in communication led to the schisms. I think it's important to say that, as I was saying before, really with the uh, Orthodox Church, uh, the Catholic Church uh, shares... uh, the vast bulk of common belief, particularly around, as was said before, the Nicene Creed. And even though uh, an orthodox liturgy may look very different to a Catholic liturgy, the elements, what they're doing Mm. is essentially the same. The belief, the understanding of of the nature of the liturgy uh, is is essentially the same. So it's not as though we've broken away and taken two quite divergent views doctrinally. There are some some small technical doctoral issues like the filioque and so on, but they're, they're relatively minor. The, the main issue is really a political breakdown, a breakdown of uh, recognition of leadership. Um, and one of the things that has happened to historically is that a lot of the Orthodox uh, world uh, has become more centered in national churches. Again, there are a lot of historical reasons for this. So you have the now the Russian Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Serbian Orthodox Church, and so on. So there's not one central um, leader of the Orthodox world as there is for the Catholic world. So there's, there are some differences like that, which make it a bit more difficult uh, for union to be achieved.
0: Keeping in mind these difficulties and also uh, the history, the length of time it's been since the schism took place, have there been efforts to reunite?
1: There have, yeah. There was, there was a number of efforts early in the piece to um, to see if, the, if they could come back. There were there were uh, proposals put at a couple of com, uh, councils that were held in in, uh, in the Catholic Church, um, but they never were able to affect any uh, any significant reunion. And after a while, they just fell away. They were just found to be too difficult. Too hard. However, in more recent times, there have been quite uh, important efforts to to rebuild unity with the uh, with the Orthodox world. Uh, It was one of the things that emerged very clearly from the Second Vatican Council, and it was taken up, and it's been taken up very much by the Catholic Church to say this is this is one clear objective that we have as a church to see if we can rebuild the uh, the unity with the Orthodox Church. And so, for instance, in 1965, uh, Pope Paul VI and the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, Ath- uh, Athenagoras uh, the First, uh, formally nullified the Anathemas, the Excommunication Acts of uh, 1054. So they very deliberately say we we now nullify these, these no longer should be seen as as an obstacle in building our relationships. And there have been quite a number of significant meetings between the Pope and, and various uh, leaders within the Orthodox tradition. So at the top level, there's serious effort to, to try to rebuild the unity. And there's a, a movement towards unity, which I think this action in Jerusalem reflects, that gives us hope to say that this is the direction we're going in. Probably to look for full structural unity would be too much to hope for, like one church now united, Orthodox and, and Catholic. But certainly we can build so much more unity and and come to so much more mutual respect. And I think that's the direction. In this, I'm reminded of um, a person who was a great advocate for this unity. That was uh, Saint John Paul II. He, of course, coming living in Poland, of course he was closer to the Orthodox world. He understood, I think, more clearly the Orthodox world, and it was certainly one of his important priorities. And he used a very beautiful image, I think, to say that the, the Church needs to learn again to breathe with two lungs, so the East and the West. And I think that reminds us of how important the Orthodox world is to uh, to the Catholic Church.
2: Of course, Your Grace, uh, in the Eastern Church, uh, particularly the Russian Church, we see it at different uh, style of relationship between the church and the government. Do you think that style of relationship is something uh, that will be healthy for the relations uh, between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Churches in terms of the closeness of that relationship? Or do you think changes there need to happen uh, between those relationships for there to be a, a stronger relationship with the Catholic Church? The, the Russian Church has a very
1: particular history, and uh, it's, it's been in the news recently with what's been happening in the Ukraine. Traditionally, the Russian Orthodox Church and the, the leadership of the country, originally the Tsars and so forth, formed a very close relationship. And there's always been a situation where the, Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox Church and the leadership of the country and also the culture, they're, they're so deeply intertwined that you can't really easily separate them. And that's both a strength and a weakness. You know, it's very interesting that you know the Orthodox Church was very strong in Russia prior to the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. You know, there were over 50,000 parishes and 1,000 monasteries. I mean, there was extraordinary uh, presence in the culture. But of course, under communism, particularly under Stalin, there was this very um, harsh. Repression of uh, of orthodoxy, and every monastery, every seminary was closed. The, the government took over all the churches. Some of the great churches were turned into museums, and, and and so on. And um, and really, there were just small little parishes, probably about 150 to 200 tiny little, probably semi-secret parishes survived that process. And many clergy, bishops, were, were sent off to. The gulags to to the concentration camps. Many, many were killed. Um, many were imprisoned. So, the the Orthodox Church suffered very seriously under this time. Unfortunately, there was also some who sided with the Communist Party and kind of worked as like a bit of a state church, and there was complications associated with that. But since the um, the changes in the Soviet Union, particularly under Mikhail Gorbachev. There's been a resurgence of of life in the Orthodox Church in Russia, Some much so that there are now some 30,000 churches, which is uh, an extraordinary growth in a very short space of time. A number of monasteries—it's probably close to 800 monasteries and seminaries—are now back in operation in uh, in Russia. So there has been a, a resurgence. To a certain extent, there's been a little bit of a structural resurgence. There's a lot of loss of faith in Russia as a result of communism. So the strength of the church is not what it was before and its presence in the the culture is not as full. But Russian Orthodox Church is very closely aligned to the government and you often see pictures of um, Vladimir Putin present at Easter ceremonies, holding candles with the leader of the Orthodox Church. So you do... See that, so Putin himself has wanted to align the government, which may seem to us a bit strange. You know, if he's come out of communism, why is he wanting to seem to be closely allied to the uh, Orthodox Church? But I think this has a lot to do with his desire to rebuild uh, Russian culture, and he sees that the Orthodox tradition is probably a very significant. Uh, influence in, in, in achieving this and I think he's really wanted to rebuild a bit of Russian pride too after all they've been through. So there are real challenges for the Orthodox Church. I think because they're very closely aligned to the government they're probably not as free to be in a position of taking a critical stance on issues and even standing aside from some political decisions that the government, government might take. So there are problems I think for the Church. Can it stand a little aside, as so we've learned very much in the Western world to have a separation between church and state. is probably a far healthier situation for the church. And it wasn't always that way in the, in the Western world. I mean, the times the church and state were very much intertwined, but it wasn't probably good for either to have church and state uh, linked together. So I think we're in a healthier position in being separated from the state. It'll be interesting to see how the Russian church goes as, it, as, as history unfolds.
0: Do you see any particular issues, perhaps particular spiritual issues, that the Catholic and Orthodox churches need to be really united on going into the future?
1: Well, well certainly we share there's so much in common. I think there's a very profound common faith, not only expressed in creeds, but uh, there's a deep sense of what it means to be Christian and the, the deep sense of this the spiritual tradition, say, for instance, in orthodoxy that that uh, is very much aligned to our own tradition, different but really reflecting so many similar things. So I find with, with people of the orthodox tradition, particularly those who are living the fullness of the tradition, I naturally feel a kinship that I think there are so many things that we can share in common uh, and talk about in common and we have a, a, a language to discuss things, even though at the externals, things may look quite different. And I think the Catholic Church, we have to say that in the last 50 years or so, has has really benefited from a a certain discovery of orthodoxy. You know, for instance, icons is a very good example. We we find icons have been very popular. And and this is a a, a very rich tradition that's come out of orthodoxy that I think we've benefited from and, and been enriched by. We've also... People are familiar with the Jesus Prayer. The Jesus Prayer is a very strong tradition in the East, and we do find people advocating the use of the Jesus Prayer, something I have come to very much appreciate, and I've advocated it on many occasions, and realize there's a very wonderful tradition of of this that goes right back to the Desert Fathers of the use of the Jesus Prayer. You get books like The Way of the Pilgrim, a very beautiful book, and I know many, many people have Catholics have read that and really been inspired by it and, and find that that speaks to them about a, a, some, a number of very deep spiritual notions. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a great enrichment. There are saints, some, uh, probably most Orthodox saints are still pretty foreign to us, but sometimes saints like Saint Seraphim of Sorrow, for instance, and, and there are others are starting to become known in the, in, in the Western church and people are being, drawn to their to their spirituality, to their writings and, and so on. And the Orthodox Church has a very rich vein of spiritual theology, and a rich understanding of the spiritual dimensions of living the, the Christian life, which I think we can draw so much from, and we have already. So Orthodoxy has made a real contribution. And finally, uh, um, monasticism, uh, Orthodoxy, has a very rich monastic tradition, which has continued over the centuries, and um, and I know Western monasticism has benefited from discovering things about um, traditions associated with monasticism. So I think there's a lot of things that um, we've benefited from as uh, as the Western Church, if you like, the the Western lung of the Church, um, and we're breathing a little bit of the the Eastern air, I think, and I think that's been a That's been a very good and enriching thing for us uh, in in the Western Church.
2: In an age that's so material and so focused on the material, uh, is there something about the Orthodox Church, its otherworldliness, for example, that you see in its liturgy, uh, that can help to enrich the Western Church, particularly after so many years of of, um, uh, working out uh, how to implement the teachings of the council is there Things we can learn, particularly maybe about the liturgy, um, some liturgies go for three or four hours in the Orthodox tradition, yet in our own Catholic churches we see people complain if the, the mass goes for more than half an hour in some cases. Um, so what kind of lessons perhaps can we can we learn or in what ways can we be perhaps enriched by the Orthodox uh, practice, particularly liturgically?
1: I think we've got a lot to learn. The Orthodox tradition has a very strong sense of the transcendent. And, and I think that's something we've lost. I, I think we, we've um, we've we've become a little bit more focused on, if you like, the horizontal level rather rather than the, the vertical transcendent level. When you go into an Eastern liturgy, it is all about entering into heavenly worship. It's all about joining the angels and saints in the praise and worship of God, and it, it sort of transports you into the heavenly realm. Um, and I think we've got a lot to learn. I think our own liturgy is meant to do the same thing. We, have the, the, we, we sing the, the song of the angels, holy, holy, holy. Um, we have the Gloria. We, we have a lot of things in our liturgy that reflect this transcendental dimension to the liturgy. But I think it has been something we've lost. And I think the Orthodox uh, tradition could teach us about this element of, of the transcendent Uh, in in our liturgical practice.
0: While we understand that the Orthodox Church is in a part of the world that um, has not been westernised to the same extent as our own own culture has been, do you think that they face some of the same issues that we do in the future with materialism, a loss of faith, secularisation? I think that's going
1: to be a great challenge as, uh, as Russia goes forward. It, it, there's no doubt that uh, materialism is, is becoming a stronger feature. Uh, unfortunately, under communism, of course, we had atheistic materialism. So, so many people were uh, drilled into them about being materialistic, but in a different way that we have it in the, in the West, of course, because we have a materialism which is built around uh, really satisfying our, our own personal needs. So, unfortunately, Russia has had, a, through communism, and now the advent of more Western approaches to things, been subject to a lot of materialism. But there's something about the Russian soul. I think there's something deep in the Russian soul that is profoundly spiritual. I think if the Orthodox uh, Church can enkindle that, and and maybe too uh, show us some things that we've lost as we have have lost a sense of the spiritual, then that could be an advantage. But the other thing I think is, in a way, the Catholic Church in the West can combine with the Orthodox uh, tradition to, if you like, be a stronger presence of the spiritual dimension to life in society generally. And they could actually help us as we could help them to, to, to say the human life has a spiritual dimension. We mustn't just be reduced down to a material existence, just down to preoccupation with what we can see, feel, and touch. The Orthodox tradition has much to offer in this regard and could be a very good ally in in, in uh, the churches, Christianity saying to the world that, that we have at the heart of our human existence uh, a spiritual dimension to our life, which is ultimately uh, fuels a relation, a, a relation with God. So I think both um, churches can be allies in presenting this Christian perspective on the nature of, of human life.
0: Thank you, Your Grace. That concludes our discussion on the Orthodox and Catholic churches. Until next time, this has been Q&A. You've been listening to Q&A with Archbishop Julian Porteus. For more episodes or to submit your questions for the Archbishop, visit cradio.org.au.